0: You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen.
1: Dear Father in Heaven, again we thank you for the opportunity to come together as a people and study your Word. Help us as we seek to find in the Holy Scriptures that which will Lift up Christ so that we might be able to lift him up to others. Bless us as we study today in Jesus' name. Amen.
2: And so we continue our presentation, His Invitation, Reconciliation, Unity, and Latter-day Power. Today, we're going to move right back into the text where we left off. And so we're going to pick up again Romans, Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. And we're going to read the passage again.
1: Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death.
2: Yeah, these are the introductory verses to our passage. And this passage is so important because it is a summary of Romans up until that point and then a transition point. And so it's a very, very important passage in Paul's letter to the Romans. And we want to raise some questions and they're really reviewed questions because we talked about them yesterday. But we want to we want to show you why these questions are so important.
1: Why the linkage between the Spirit and Christ? What role does the Spirit play in salvation?
2: Now you will recall that yesterday we talked about Pentecostalism, the charismatic movement, and how it has really distorted the role of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit has really been distorted. And so we want to emphasize that point because it's so important. And so look at this. Clarification.
1: Satan will distort the person and work of the Spirit to displace Jesus Christ at the center of salvation and worship, thus attempting to thwart God's plan. Yeah.
2: Yeah to thwart God's plan. And Satan doesn't care. He will use anything to distort the plan of God. And so let's illustrate it graphically. Pentecostalism places the Holy Spirit at the center of the salvation narrative. Now, you look at that and you say, oh, but the Holy Spirit is God. So, what's the problem? Why are you making a big deal of it? Okay? But the fact of the matter is that it places Jesus Christ where? On the periphery. Now, watch this. If this occurs, then you are still dealing with idolatry. Wow, that's deep, you know. Let's support it.
1: Paul says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself.
2: Wait, 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 wait. Do we get this? Luke will say in Acts, huh? Acts 2:12 that there is how many names under heaven? You know, this is something that we cannot play with because Satan is doing everything that he can to displace Jesus Christ at the center. And so we have to be clear. So, so do like this for me. You know, I'm a teacher. I need interaction. Are we clear? Amen. Okay, good. Yeah. Important clarification.
1: Although the Spirit is the third person of the Godhead, coequal with the Father and Son, believers are justified, sanctified, and finally glorified through the reception of Christ's life imparted by the Spirit.
2: You know, now, it is very important, again, to visualize what we're talking about. You know, 80% of Americans are visual. You know, I am actually auditory but most Americans are visual. And so...
1: The salvation process illustrated.
2: Yeah, so we wanna illustrate it for you. And you you gotta get this now, this is really important. And usually with my students, I will have a student step forward and I'll illustrate piece by piece, but I'm not gonna do it. Maybe I can do it on my wife. Look at how she's looking (laughs) at me. Okay. (laughs) Okay, so when you talk about God's holistic wisdom, salvation through faith in Christ, it has three important parts. And so we start with, and as Adventists, we know the terminology, but we need to be able to break it down so we talk about justification, okay? Does everybody really understand justification, First of all, first of all, it is a forensic or legal term. You know, it's a courtroom term. So you know the courtroom where you have a judge and jury and all of that stuff? That's what it is. It's a courtroom term. Boy, and I have to, you know, I'm from New York and I teach with my body and this thing is trying to come off my ear. (laughs) But it is a courtroom term. And so the idea is acquitted, acquittal. You've been declared not guilty. And so one way to illustrate it, and I'm, I'm afraid to do it. How can I do it a different way? If I take this jacket off, it might,
1: you, you know, destroy sure. the mic.
2: So let's use this paper. So, so when you talk about justification, you're really talking about this notion of a covering. So think about this as a robe. And now I'm going to put the robe on Carol. And so you're talking about now the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. I'm covered by his righteousness. But when, when, when I put this cover, this robe on Carol, do you think that she still has issues? Yes. Say it louder. Yes, sir. She still has issues. But when the father looks at her through the righteousness of the son, the father says, not guilty. Oh, Lord, have mercy. I could just get excited. Okay, so that leads us to this idea. Get it now. Jesus rescues us from the what? The penalty of sin. This is why he is our what? Look at it. It's not up there? Savior. Savior. Step one. Are we all together on step one? Everybody? Okay. Now, let's go to step two. Sanctification. We, we use these terminologies, but we don't explain them. And this is where the Holy Spirit really comes in. Because now we're talking about being changed or transformed by Christ's Spirit. This is the work of the Spirit. You get it? So, so so, the righteousness of Christ that is on carol, imputed, now the Holy Spirit will impart it, will put it in carol. Come on now. That's the righteousness of Christ. So, we can say, Jesus rescues us from the what? The power of sin. Ah, sin is a power. But, in order for him to do that, he must be Lord. Do you know that so many people love to have Jesus as Savior, but they don't like that Lord stuff? Because the Lord is a Lord. Now, I tell people all the time, we have a loving Lord. A Lord who died in our place. That's a beautiful Lord. So do we all get it? Second part? We're good? Let's go to the third. What is it? Glorification. Now, watch this. We're going to need this today. Look at this word. Read it, hun.
1: Vindicated. Reign eternally with Christ.
2: Ah. Reign with Christ eternally. So, when you've been covered, imputed, when the righteousness of Christ has been imparted, internalized through the power of the Spirit, then you are ready. You are ready. You know, when you stand before the judge, Jesus Christ, you stand there, not condemned, but vindicated. You know, you can, you can go both ways in the courtroom, right? Sometimes we just think of judgment as a negative idea. No, no. It can be negative or positive, especially when you know the judge.
1: Okay, so
2: it says, now, read it, hon.
1: Jesus rescues us from the presence of sin.
2: Oh, my Lord. Do you get it? He rescues us from the penalty, from the power, and then from the presence of sin. And he can do this because he is the what? The judge. Oh, Lord. Savior, Lord, and judge. Is that complete? Come on, say amen. Yeah. Okay, let's move. Summary, Christ and the Spirit.
1: Jesus says that the Spirit will glorify God the Son. The Spirit is not an independent actor.
2: Don't let that Pentecostal theology penetrate. Okay? So many people are buying into it. Next?
1: The Holy Spirit mediates the death and resurrection of life, I'm sorry, and the resurrection life of Christ to believers, communal and individual.
2: And don't separate the two. Don't separate the two. Most people do not understand that God is coming back not just for holy individuals, but He's coming back for a people. You know, so many people say, oh, this is just an individual thing. Well, that's not in the Bible. We talked about it before. It is both vertical and what? And horizontal. How can you love God whom you've never seen? and have disdain for your brothers and sisters. That's biblical. Let's go.
1: The spirit creates relational dependence on Christ. This is the process of a spirit-enabled sanctification.
2: Spirit-enabled. You cannot do this through willpower. Spirit-enabled.
1: Paul describes these activities as the new way of the Spirit.
2: The new, inclusive way of the Spirit. Now, let's make a pivot, a quick pivot here, and go back to our passage. Question?
1: How does the conjunction therefore, literally, consequently, function in this passage.
2: Now, remember we talked about this notion of exegesis. Remember? It's a big term that just means to pull out. So we're seeking to pull out the inspired meaning of Paul. You know, Gregory Allen's opinion about the Bible doesn't mean anything. We want what the Spirit of Christ, what the Spirit of God gave to Paul. Okay? That's what we're doing this afternoon. You know, I I tell my people when I was pastor and I tell my students, challenge! If it's not in the Word, you better not believe it. You know, and saints, you have to know the Word to challenge your pastors. Make sure they're straight. Because opinion, you know, that and what is it now, 50 cents? In my day, they say that and 50 cents will get you a cup of coffee. But now um, um, at Starbucks, it's a little bit more than that, right? Okay. Okay, so, suggested answer.
1: The conjunction signals critical material already treated that is necessary for the interpretation of our entire passage. So look
2: at this. We've talked about it already. Proof texting, I don't want to be too strong. Proof texting is problematic because you can pull a text out of context and make it say anything. And so look at what we're doing here, and it's a necessity. You have a conjunction here. You have a conjunction, and this conjunction forces you to deal with the
1: previous context. And so we say, Contextually in chapter 7, Paul has just described the state of ongoing guilt or condemnation experienced by the Pharisaic Jew who relies on law keeping for righteousness.
2: Oh boy. Did you get that? You know, this is really important given the fact that Paul, we're going to talk about it in a moment, Paul is an ethnic Jew and he's He's criticizing aspects of Judaism. Is that all right? You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you what? It will set you free. And so Paul's doing it for a reason.
1: Here he emphatically asserts no condemnation for the ones in Christ Jesus. Oh,
2: Lord, have mercy. I'm born and raised Adventist. Many of you are. What do you do with what Paul is saying here? Hon, you need to read it again. It hasn't made an impact yet. Please read it again.
1: No condemnation for the ones in Christ Jesus.
2: Amen. Well, no, we're still not getting it. Amen. I can tell. How much condemnation? None. 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 Is that once saved, always saved? Because you have this qualification. No condemnation for
1: those in Christ Jesus.
2: Those in Christ Jesus. We're going to be working with that in a moment. Let me show you something. And how important it is. And this is a quick grammar note. And, and trust me, saints, I never, never in the pulpit, I try not to use, you know, the original language unless it is absolutely necessary, okay? Whether it be Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek, you know, because people try to show off, and that's not important, okay? But this is so important here that we have to give you a grammar, a grammar note.
1: Paul creates an intensified form of the Greek noun, krima, or judgment.
2: So here in our English translation, it says condemnation, but it's really, it's really judgment. There is now no what? Judgment. And this is negative judgment. This is condemnation. There is now no judgment. And you know what Paul does? Paul actually, in the New Testament, he creates a word because on that word krima, he puts a preposition, kasakrima. You know, in other words, t- intensified, Paul wants to scream. There is now no condemnation. It's that powerful, it's that important. Let me illustrate what I'm saying to you. How many of you know Pastor Dan Matthews? What? Yeah, he used to be with Faith for the Day well, it's before your time. So I was like, okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but a, a television preacher. And now in retirement, he is an associate pastor at Loma Linda Seventh-day Adventist Church, and he has a special ministry to us. You, uh, us. I'm a senior. Your young folks say senior. Yeah, I'm a senior. And so he has a special ministry to seniors at Loma Linda Church. And you have about five or 600 seniors at Loma Linda, 7th Avenue Adventist Church. So he's like their pastor. And two years ago, he gave a sermon in Arizona at the Arizona um, Convocation. And he said something that's going to be disturbing to you right now. And so I always encourage you to fasten your seatbelt. Okay? Fasten your seatbelt now. Pastor Matthew said that when he visits his Seventh-day Adventist members, many of whom are former pastors, retired pastors, retired missionaries, they will say to the pastor, Pastor, have we done enough to be saved. Some of these workers have worked for Christ for
3: 50 years
2: because so many seven-day Adventists do not have assurance in Christ. I'm telling you this afternoon based on the word of God that Paul says by way of inspiration that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. And you know, like they say, you, in New York, you can take that to the bank. Let's move.
1: To drive home the new standing of Jews and Gentiles in Christ. Yeah,
2: I should have had that up there already. Yes. Okay, so good. <laughs> Okay, now, now, critical questions, critical questions.
1: Paul's assertion, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, raises a critical two-part question that leads to a third application question. So here's the two-part question. What is the meaning of the propositional phrase in Christ Jesus, sorry, the prepositional phrase in Christ Jesus, and how does it function in Romans? Next. Next, and more importantly, are we actually in Christ?
2: Come on, we're going to answer that question. Because there's no condemnation for those what in Christ. So, is this an important question? Okay. So let's look at it now. Clarification.
1: Paul employs the technical phrase, in Christ, in at least three important ways in his letters.
2: Okay, so here's number one.
1: Solidarity conversion. Transference from bondage in Adam to freedom through Christ's death. Sin no longer reigns.
2: So this is the way that in Christ is used by Paul first in most of his letters. And I want you to see this. It's very important, so we're going to illustrate it to you. Paul talks about and he conceives of solidarity or conversion as a literal transference. I want you to see this now. So according to Paul, we move from the headship of Adam and under sin, based on Adam, to... Christ and grace. So, when you're still under Adam and we're born in sin, David says, and shapen in iniquity, with Adam is our head, we are under what? Sin. With Christ, this transference, this cr- have you been transferred? You know, I stand under a new head. And that's Jesus Christ. And, and I'm now under grace. Now, watch it. It gets even more serious here because when you are under Adam, sin leads to what? But praise the Lord, grace leads to life and life eternal. Do you get the transfer? It's important. Let's go to number
1: two. Union, relational intimacy with Christ that issues in transformation and fruitage, progressive Christ-likeness.
2: Whoa. Whoa. This is deep, saints. Read it one more time, baby.
1: Relational intimacy with Christ that issues in transformation and fruitage, Progressive Christ likeness.
2: Yeah. So we're talking about we're talking about intimacy, intimacy leading to transformation, transformation resulting in fruitage. There's a lot there. You know, John explains it in John 15, 1 through seventeen. Abide in me and I in you. But I want to show you something now that is extremely important about relational intimacy. And we're going to use John, you know, John and his gospel to explain it. And it's very important. It's very important. And we get confused oftentimes. So John has two ways of talking about knowing, and I want you to see this now. So we're comparing. So he uses the verb oida. Again, I'm only using this because it's so important, and you'll see in a moment. So in his letters, in his letter, and in his... start, In the gospel and in his letters, he will use this terminology. So you have know, to know, and then he uses another term, ginosko. And this also means to know. So what's the difference? Get this now. Oida is what kind of knowledge? It is factual knowledge. It's knowing about. While gnosko is intimate knowledge. Now, is there a difference? And boy, if I asked the wives to put up their hands, they would say, oh, Lord, have mercy. There's a huge difference between factual knowledge and intimate knowledge. Oh, yes. That's another way to speak about Head knowledge versus heart knowledge. Good. Yeah. And so again, we said that John talks about this intimate knowledge in John 15, 1 to 17. But I want to show you something from Matthew. I want to show you something. Matthew helps out John in this explanation. And you all have seen this passage, and I call it one of the most disturbing passages in all of Scripture. Look at it.
1: Critical clarification. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did not we prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles?
2: Now we're going to stop for a moment. This group of people will be people with good works. And not only that, but their good works in the name of Jesus. How about a mission trip? Is that a good work? Look at what Jesus is saying. And now look at the next line.
1: Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Oh, my Lord.
2: I never knew you. And then the next line throws me to the ground.
1: Away from me, you evildoers.
2: In some translation, you evil workers.
1: Notice, key point. Here Jesus uses the term gnosco because he has no intimate knowledge of these believers. Lord, have mercy. Jesus rejects works righteousness.
2: He has no heart, intimate relationship with these believers. Is that important? Yes, it is. Let's move. Number three.
1: Participation. Continuous sharing in the death and resurrection of Christ through the power of the Spirit. Acceptance of a new paradoxical slavery that provides open access to God the Father.
2: Now, I know we don't like that terminology, but it's biblical. It's biblical. So, I am no longer in Christ a slave to sin, but I am a slave to righteousness. And the righteousness that comes from God through his spirit. That's what the text says. Now, you can argue with the text. Don't argue with me. You know, you don't like the metaphors. But remember, we talked about sanctification and lordship? And so it goes together. Are we clear on now what it means to be in Christ? Everybody? Rhetorical questions. Time for rhetorical questions. We're in good shape. Okay.
1: Who are you?
2: Hmm. You know, one of the most important philosophical questions. Who are you? And I would say it's more important theologically. Who are you?
1: Look at this. A humanistic perspective.
3: When he was a child, and let me emphasize, a lot of people just took it out of context. He said when he was growing up, it was a child's effort to define who he was. Pay attention to what he says. Can we get this straight? What do you call yourself? Do you call yourself African-American? I know you are. Your your father's half black, quarter Chinese, quarter American Indian, mother's half Thai, quarter Chinese, and quarter white. So... (laughs) You are, that's why you are America's son. Yeah. (laughs) You are America's (laughs) son. A little funny thing is when I came up with his name, I'm a cobblin' Asian. A cobblin' Asian. Caucasian, blue, black, Indian, Asian. Coblin' Asian. That's what you call yourself? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, he does not say he calls himself that now. He said that he called himself that as a child. He was little. Here's what he did say. Because I, I realized he was getting himself in a lot of trouble. So I went back and asked him the question again. I realized he was in more trouble than he knew when he said it. I asked him about how he sees himself now, and this is what he said. What matters when you call one or the other? Does it bother you to be called African American? Yeah, it does. Because I, be honest with you, if I would have to label myself as anything, um, ethnic-wise, you know, I had to always had to check a box, you know, Mm in those little forms and stuff and they say pick one, I can't. I usually pick African-American, Asian because those are the two households I was raised under. So you don't want to deny your mother's heritage? No, I'm not gonna deny my mom's heritage. Mm -hmm. I'm not gonna deny my father's heritage. Those are the two I was raised under and those are the two things I know. Although he may call himself Kabla, Kablasian, when people see him, they see a black face, Mm -hmm. they see a black man. How did you raise him to believe or raise him to believe that he was of what race and belonged to what race? The human race. The human race. <laughs>
2: now notice, notice at the end of that clip how people clapped for what the father said, Tiger's father said, the human race. Uh, and, and this is a humanistic perspective. And so, and so the people cheered, okay? But now I want to raise these questions again to us.
1: Who are you? How do you self-identify?
2: Come on, lock in now, please. Lock in, okay? Who are you?
1: As far as racial identity is concerned, European descent, what is called ontological whiteness. And ontological is a big Greek root word that simply means whiteness as a state of being. Or African descent, what could be called ontological blackness, blackness as a state of being.
2: Now I'm gonna blow you away right now. You ready to be, uh uh-oh, you gotta do what now? Okay, you got. But you got to do what? Yeah, you can put that seatbelt on. Do you all realize that these categories, white and black, are only five hundred years old? They came into existence at the time of the transatlantic slave trade. In antiquity, there's no such thing. People didn't even deal with color. So this is relatively new. If if we've been around 6,000 plus years, then this is new stuff. And yet so much of our experience It's framed by these categories.
1: Come on, stay with me now. Look at the next. National identity, German or French. Tribal identity, if you're in Rwanda, Tutsi or Hutu. Caste identity in India, Brahmin or untouchable, or Dila. Ethnic identity, Mexican or Puerto Rican?
2: Watch this one.
1: Ethnic identity, Japanese or Chinese?
2: And my brother's back there so we can say Korean. <laughs> okay.
1: yeah. Interethnic identity. Look at this. African American, Caribbean, and Haitian. And many people don't think about inter-ethnic identity. But if you're on a campus like we are, that is, is a black campus, we're in a historically black college, university, there are huge differences and divisions. Oh yeah. So that if you're from Haiti, you don't necessarily pile around with someone from Jamaica. This is an unusual friendship. You don't sit at the table together. You don't even speak the same language. You're all black. And by the way,
2: Saints, we need to have this conversation. Amen. Now, I want to show you something that's so beautiful. We want to show you something from the Bible that is so beautiful in terms of these questions. Who are you? Who are you? Look at this.
1: Critical clarification. Throughout his letter, Paul uses a discourse of common primary identity to reshape the ethos of the ethnically divided believers in Rome.
2: Ah. So, So in Rome, they are looking at themselves, these two communities, as Gentiles and what? Jews. Paul is going to reshape their thinking And hopefully, through the spirit, their behavior towards each other. So look at what he does. It's it's beautiful. Watch this.
1: A sampling. Called to belong to Christ, loved of God, called saints.
2: So Paul says, forget that Jew and Gentile stuff. You are all saints. Come on, let's keep on going.
1: Justified, reconciled, indwelled by the spirit.
2: Common identity. Debtors. Oh, I could stay here forever. Familial language. So he actually uses, between this divided community, he calls them family and uses family language.
1: Look at it. Sons, heirs of either gender. Adopted sons, children of God, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ.
4: Mm.
2: Co-heirs with Christ. Language of common identity. Now, now, I was born and raised African American. The Spirit is going to come to me at some point in my my sanctification and say, Gregory, which identity will be first? And I hope I choose my identity in Christ. We got a little bit of homework for you before you leave.
1: Study question. What do you make of John's description of the common identity and origin of the redeemed? After these things, I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, people, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So I said to him, so he said to me, these are the ones who come out of great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat, for the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and will lead them to living fountains of waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes.
2: Now we want you to note something. Extremely important.
1: Endurance in tribulation through faith in Christ is decisive. Not ethnicity.
2: You do not get to the throne and the throne room based on your ethnicity. You have faith in Jesus. Because saints, we may not believe it, but we were created one blood and we're going to be one blood in heaven. And that's the gospel. My wife looks at me and that means move. Move. Mm -hmm. (laughs) After 41 years, you know I know. (laughs) Now, we're going to address something that's a bit challenging right now, okay? And you need to know that I personally have never been politically affiliated. So that's going to be important.
1: A contemporary crisis. One of the most toxic issues in America today, even in Adventism, is political identity.
2: Look at the image. Look at it carefully. And be honest in your heart. And then listen to this. It says... As a Christian,
0: how involved should we be in politics of the day? He says, Today we see preachers hosting national televised debates with candidates, having great presence lobbying in Washington. Is there a biblical mandate to have a voice in our country's government? I think that if you are a preacher of Jesus Christ and you are a pastor, that you should be known for speaking the gospel of Jesus Christ and nothing else. It has no bearing on the kingdom of God, who is the president of the United States. has no bearing. So there's an effect on how we vote at all? Well, I'll get to that. I'll get to that. Okay. But the point is this. There is no impact on the kingdom of God from the politics of this country or any other country. Because Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. So, if you want to dabble in something that has no bearing on eternity, that has no bearing on the Kingdom of God, then you can dabble in politics. For a pastor to do that, I think, is to prostitute himself away from what his calling is, and the only thing that makes a difference, and that's the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the advance of the Kingdom. Now, having said that, let me say this. As a Christian, I must take every uh, possible approach to uphold righteousness in a society. So when something comes up um, in the courts or on the ballot that gives me an opportunity to vote for righteousness, Mm. to vote for things that I know honor God, to vote for things that protect people from evil and all of that, I as a Christian have to vote what I think fits the biblical standard. But I understand that's a civic duty, Hmm. and that's separate from my responsibility to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church needs to stay out of politicking. It needs to vote righteousness, and it needs to proclaim the gospel. That's great, John. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for what you've contributed. I think this really clears up for a lot of people, myself included, uh, just how we're supposed to look at these different issues and, and how do we apply Scripture to our lives. Yeah, I might have certain preferences about who's president or who's Congress and who's the judge and all of those things. And uh, At the end of the day, however... Nobody's eternity is changed by anything but the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's what every Christian should be known for as being passionate about. That's our Constitution. That's it. <laughs> John
2: this is This is John MacArthur, and he's sharing his opinion as a Reformed Christian. You know, he's a very popular preacher. But we have something more. And I want to share this with you now. Ellen White's inspiration related to politics, and it's going to blow you away. Listen.
1: The Lord would have his people bury political questions. On these themes, silence is eloquence. Christ calls upon his followers to come into unity on the pure gospel principles, which are plainly revealed in the word of God. We cannot with safety vote for political parties for we do not know whom we are voting for. We cannot with safety take part in any political scheme. We are not to compromise principle by yielding to the opinions and prejudices which we may have encouraged before we united with God's commandment-keeping people. We have enlisted in the army of the Lord, and we are not to fight on the enemy's side, but on the side of Christ, where we can be a united whole in sentiment, in action, in spirit, in fellowship, those who are Christians will act in harmony in Christian fellowship. They will not wear political badges, but the badge of Christ.
2: Mm, 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 mm. Now remember, this is not the Allen's speaking. Okay? Allen has more to say.
1: What are we to do then? Let political questions alone. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness, and what concord hath Christ with Belial, or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? What can there be in common between these parties? There can be no fellowship, no communion. The word fellowship means participation, partnership, God employs the strongest figures to show that there should be no union between worldly parties and those who are seeking the righteousness of Christ. One more. Those teachers in the church or in the school who distinguish themselves by their zeal in politics should be relieved of their work and responsibilities without delay, for the Lord will not cooperate with them. The tithes should not be used to pay anyone for speechifying on political questions.
2: Lord, have
4: mercy.
1: Every teacher, minister, or leader in our ranks who has stirred with a desire to ventilate his opinions on political questions should be converted by a belief in the truth or give up his work. <laughs> his influence must tell as a laborer together with God in winning souls to Christ, or his credentials must be taken from him. If he does not change, he will do harm, and only harm.
2: Important question.
1: To our communal detriment, why are we as Adventists not following Ellen White's inspired counsel on political non-alignment? That's a thought question.
2: You know, we want to trot Ellen White out And use her when she agrees with our ideas. But how about when her inspiration goes against the grain? Is she still inspired? We're going home now, kingdom focused. Jesus' formative question. So look at this. You remember this.
1: And he said to them.
2: This is to his parents.
1: Why were you looking for me?
2: And then Jesus says.
1: Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Uh, Do you see the principle here?
2: If you don't see it, let me
1: give it to you. Faithful believers will be about his business. Note. Paul's vocabulary of primary identity answers the questions of existence. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going?
2: Who am I in Jesus Christ?
4: What I do, an artist, an accountant, a teacher, a mother, or am I what I've achieved? an honor student, an MVP, a winner. Am I the things I've done right? Or am I defined by the things I've done wrong? Am I a saint, a sinner? What about what others think of me? Am I all of these things? None of these things? Who am I? How I identify myself determines how I approach life. If I am what I do, I'll always need to do more and achieve more to find my value. If I am what others say, I'll always try to please people instead of my Heavenly Father. But if I listen to who God says I am and embrace His identity in me, I'll find the freedom to live out all He has planned for me. God calls me His child. He says I am wise and restored that I'm a brand new creation in Christ. I am chosen and holy and blameless before God. He calls me his masterpiece. I am loved by God. He says I am made complete through the grace and mercy of Jesus, my Savior. And when I see myself the way God sees me, I walk with confidence because I trust the one who answers the question.
2: So let's end on this note. And we want to take you back to the first century and to the early church. And do you recognize that the early church had a baptismal vow? So you're all familiar with our baptismal vows, right? So let's look at the baptismal vow of the early church.
1: As many of you, as were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. These categories were identity markers in greco roman society. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise.
2: So let's summarize the textual truth here.
1: Although Paul is an ethnic Jew, he rejects Jewishness as his primary identity.
2: Do you all realize that that Paul is so much a person in Christ that in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, to the Jew, I became a Jew. He is so much in Jesus Christ. Next. Next.
1: Paul uses the phrase in Christ to encapsulate the common primary identity of believers in Rome. Indeed, believers are one body in Christ.
2: Believers are one body in Christ. I'm going to ask you to do something for me right now. Say it together. Believers are one body in Christ. We close with this question.
1: Application question. Why do not the SDA baptismal vows hint of the necessity of oneness in Christ? It's interesting that we can talk about whether or not you drink coffee or eat pork or pay your tithe regularly. and A lot of other things But nowhere in our vows does it say, I see myself now as in Christ, not according to my ethnicity, my race, my caste, my nationality, or my tribe.
2: And let's close with the words of Jesus.
1: Jesus' prayer for end-time believers. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their message. May they all be one. As you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, may they also be one in us, so the world may believe that you sent me.
2: Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.
5: I'm looking at the clock. We have
2: four minutes for questions, and we have a roving mic. Four minutes for questions.
5: Yes, um, thank you for the information that you gave um, you could say many things, but I'll try to keep it short. <laughs> um, with regard to ethnicity, like you said, um, as Christians we should be striving and we should see ourselves first in Christ. And many of the issues that we're having as a church and the lack of unity is because people more identify themselves based on their nationality or maybe by their socioeconomic economic group as opposed to seeing everyone in the church as Christians. But on a political matter, I thought was very interesting, um, especially given the fact that as Seventh-day Adventists, the same spirit of prophecy also talks about the fact that the image of the beast is going to be set up through the power of politics, through the appeal of people to the state, and there's no political party that is disclosed as being the party in charge when the image is finally set up. And in fact, as we understand it, there are some other political parties that are so aligned with um, apostate protestantism that we've talked about last night with Pastor Ross that, that are actively pushing for Sunday legislation, yet it seems that there are many Adventists that seem to ally themselves with a party and that both parties are corrupt, with a party that allies itself with those who are pushing for Sunday, it doesn't make any sense. Like you're saying, we need to stay out of politics, like Pastor MacArthur said, we should strive for righteousness, but we can't rely upon either party because both parties are corrupt. Let me,
2: let me just say to you on this, and I have gone out of my way to stay clear of politics, my whole ministry, 41 years um saints we're going to show you tomorrow we're going to show you tomorrow the stellar the stellar practices of our pioneers as it relates to politics as adventists we started off on the right foot. We were politically non-aligned. We were not Republicans. We were not Whigs. We were not Democrats. We were Christians. And we argued for Christian positions. Period. And we're going to look at that because I believe by God's grace that we need to go back there because we can be more effective then because Satan is in to divide and conquer. I think as Adventist Christians, we take our eyes off Christ and we're not totally in Christ. We're looking through our own lens, um, our good deeds versus our bad deeds, our racism or Whatever. We're not looking through Christ's eyes. We have to be totally in Christ to solve all these issues. Yeah. That primary identity again. It's 15 after. I don't want to step over my boundaries. We can continue the conversation tomorrow. Cal's going to close with prayer.
1: Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the clarity that it gives us. But we thank you more for the spirit that leads us to open our hearts and minds to his inspiration so that we can live out what you have called us to be, brothers and sisters in Christ. May this be our aspiration and our reality, we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.
0: To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.